Well, before we get into today's lesson, just by review last week, we looked at the end of chapter 1 and a couple main points we made. This was the uh, teaching on, um, first of all, Jesus healing Peter's mother and how she immediately was able to be healed. And immediately after that, she got up and served the Jesus and his apostles. And you then see Jesus leaving there and having a very busy healing time with the entire town coming to uh, that home of Peter and healing them uh, into late into the night. And the point we um, drew from that was that just as Jesus is tirelessly merciful and kind to people, so should we also be diligent in how we are showing acts of mercy to other people. We then saw Jesus leave and have a quiet time of prayer. don't know how long that lasted, but it doesn't seem as long as he would have wanted because shortly after Peter and them sort of hunt him down and say, Jesus, Jesus, they're all looking for you. Where, you know, where are you? Where are you? So the point there was, first of all, prayer is important. Jesus did it in the very early hours after a very late night, and it was very important for him to have his communion with the Father, and so should we too. We should pray often, uh, pray when it's not convenient, pray when we're tired, and uh, praying in a quiet place is uh, an example that he sets for us. There was a really important verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 38, where they're all coming to him, wanting him to perform more miracles. And chapter 138, he said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may do more healings. No, he said, so that I may preach there also. That's what I came for. So his ministry primarily is a teaching and preaching ministry. That's the most important thing. And the principle and the point we took away from that was uh, asking ourselves, do we seek to keep that in the forefront of our mind, teaching the word, preaching it, so to speak, telling other people about Christ's glory? Do we do that enough? And we don't do it enough. We ought to all do it more and more and more and recognize the opportunities we have every day to do it. Uh, Russell's not here today. Um, in any event, he, he made a great point last week after we finished because we were talking about the healings and we talked about how yeah Jesus left all those people there and they, they still needed to be healed, yet he and his wisdom knew it was more important to, um, to go teach. And we talked about a little bit the modern-day healers, and he made a good point. When you see those people healing, they never really get to the teaching part. Right? They end it at the healing, and that's the miracle, and that's the miracle, and it draws the people, and I guess it draws the money, and all the fantastic applause and everything else, but they never really finish it like Jesus did, and use that as a tool, really, to teach them the truth. So I think that was a great point that he made. Okay, I think what I'll do today, any questions about last week? Any of the lessons from last week? Well, chapter 1 of Mark is, uh, you know, Jesus' arrival and healings and teachings and he's baptized in the Jordan. It's very fast and it's very sort of positive and good and Jesus has come. It's a new day. Well, chapter 2 is you just start to see the opposition. It's a real dramatic shift between chapter 1 and chapter 2. And I want to read the whole chapter. And as I read it, we'll, we'll mainly focus today on verses <laughs> 1 through 12. And, um, but I'll read the whole thing, and as I read it, just pay attention to a few things. Uh, pay attention to the scribes. This is when they appear in, in verse 6. You'll see them. This is their arrival on the scene. They were mentioned in chapter 1 when the people recognized Jesus' teaching uh, was with authority, unlike the scribes. So they're mentioned there, but we'll see them here in, in chapter 2 of Mark several times. So when, just pay attention to them and pay attention to how they get a little more aggressive throughout the chapter. First, they start reasoning in their hearts about Jesus, then they ask the disciples about Jesus, and then they confront Jesus about his teaching. So they get more bold throughout the chapter. Um, and then look, too, at the miracles. And another point that was made, Matt actually made this great point. Well, we'll talk about miracles after uh, I read the chapter and how the Lord, has, how Jesus uses these miracles in his uh, ministry. So it's 28 verses. I'll start with chapter 2, verse 1. We'll read the whole thing. 
Uh, when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk? But, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. And he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. As he passed by, excuse me, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost in the skins as well, but one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need, and he and his companions became hungry, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests, and he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So there a lot in this chapter, I think. And first thing I want to do uh, is put it a little bit in context, because right off the bat, when he says, when he came back, to Capernaum, several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. So, interesting word, home, there, right? You may think, well, his home isn't Capernaum. I thought his home was Nazareth, right? So, I just want to explain that a little bit. Um, his hometown is Nazareth, right? That's clear in the, in the writing. Matthew talks about it, Luke, and he's Jesus of Nazareth, and that's mentioned as his hometown. But, he also had a sort of second home in Capernaum. He must have had some sort of place there, a condo or an apartment or something a friend had for him there because he spent so much time there. He, he, well, he didn't have anywhere to lay his head. That's said in one place, but that emphasizes how he's he, he just so busy. But he, he clearly had a, had a home here in Capernaum. In fact, in Matthew chapter 4, it says, Verses 12 and 13, Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. So this idea of settled in Capernaum 
reemphasizes the idea he, he settled there. He had a place to live. In fact, Matthew chapter 9, verse 1, he calls it his own city. That's what Jesus, let me just flip there for us. Matthew 9, verse 1. I just point this out because you'll see as you read through it, sometimes he mentions his home. It's just hard to sometimes keep track of where Jesus is in Nazareth or in Capernaum, but Capernaum is sometimes called his home. Chapter 9 of Matthew, verse 1, getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. So Matthew's calling Capernaum his own city. Okay, so note that. The other thing I want to point out is the time frame, according to Luke, of where Jesus is in this part of his ministry. As you know, Mark goes so fast, he skips over probably a lot. And, um, but if you look at Luke, go back there with me if you want. Well, flip there because it'll be easier for you to see this. In Luke chapter 4, I'm going the wrong direction, Luke 4. So Luke is the most reliable timeline, right? Because he tells us in the beginning, I set out to lay this out. So his timeline is probably more accurate than what you'll see in Matthew or Mark, especially when he says so. So if you look at Luke chapter 4, right at the beginning, you see Jesus is tempted by the devil, and he starts his public ministry in verse 14. And he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the surrounding district. He began teaching in their synagogues. And then verse 16, he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, as was his custom. He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. So he has a ministry in, uh, in Capernaum. He, he goes down to Nazareth. They're not too far apart. If you look on your map, I guess they're 12 or 15 miles apart, something like that. So he goes to Nazareth. And then when he's in Nazareth, this is when he reads from the prophet Isaiah. And verse 22 and they were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, no doubt you'll quote me this proverb. Quotes the same proverb. Verse 24, he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel. And he goes to tell the story about the widows in Israel. who, um, uh, But Elijah was only sent to one widow. To help her out, right? And then he, he tells them and reminds them about Naaman, the Syrian. Verse 27, there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. So sort of pointing out to them that God is graciously choosing some people to help, especially Naaman, the Syrian, who the Hebrews would have rejected the Syrians. They weren't part of the nation of Israel. So but God chose to heal Naaman, the leper, to boot. Okay, so he's a Syrian and he's a leper. And God graciously chose to heal him. Okay, the point I'm making here is at verse 28. And all the people in the synagogue in Nazareth were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. And then verse 31, and he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. Okay, so, so, and so this is where Mark picks up. So this is where you have sort of parallel verses in Luke and Mark, his ministry in Galilee. The point I want to make was, uh, even at this point in time, there's a lot of persecution already that Mark hadn't told us about. So these scribes and Pharisees were a little more loaded than it appears just by reading Mark. So I just hope that sort of help set for us the context of, these, of this um, situation. All right, so back to Mark chapter 2. He's in Capernaum. And the scene of the paralytic is just poignant, right? So <coughs> just put yourself in that situation. Jesus is in this house teaching. Crowds everywhere. They can't even get in the door. The whole city apparently is there again being healed um, and he's speaking the word to them these gracious words that are falling from his lips no doubt right he's teaching all these people and they're they're listening and this paralytic it says here four people had to carry him so it's just pitiful right this poor pitiful guy probably maybe all his life he was that way these four friends carrying him on this mat and they can't get in so what do they do somehow they climb up to the roof. I don't know how they did that. There may have been 
an outdoor ladder. But how do you get a guy on a pallet up there? It probably wasn't easy. Very determined, right? Very determined to get in to see Jesus. So, um, so you see where you can go with this. Uh, we is determined to seek the Lord, right? Nevertheless, so they, they, the four guys haul this poor guy up on the top of the roof, and then they decide, well, what are we going to do? We dig a hole in the roof. That's how desperate we are to have this friend of ours healed. So they dig the hole in the roof, somehow lower him down out of the roof, right? So you see how important this is to them to get him to see Jesus. Um, and when they lower him down, Jesus sees them. And he says, what's the first thing I ex would expect and hope he would say is, you're healed, right? That's what you would expect him to say. You're healed. That's why they came there, I would guess. But he doesn't say that, right? He says, your sins are forgiven. So, powerful, right? So, a few things to um, just point out there. Number one, Jesus knew what he needed, much more important than healthy limbs. He needed his sins to be forgiven. So his spiritual condition, in a way, it's hot. Yes, Randy, thank you. It is hot in here. Um, so Jesus knew his spiritual condition. That's more important. And I'm sure he taught everyone who heard it at that moment the very same thing. The spiritual condition of this man is much more important even than this paralytic that you see before you you know make i thought of john chapter 1 verse 9 there was a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man so that's what he did he he claimed to him your sins are forgiven the other thought is uh jesus knew his heart and this man may have i mean been burdened with his sins maybe he's burdened with those more than his physical infirmity you don't know but this is what Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. And at that point in time, we mentioned this last week, it, the thought was, if you're sick, it's because you sinned, right? That was the prevailing thought in the Hebrew mind. If you're sick, you sinned. And we talked about how that's not true necessarily, because God uses illness sometimes just for his, his own glory. But that was probably what's going through everyone's mind. Um, nevertheless, he says, your sins are forgiven. That shocks everyone, especially the scribes. Verse 6, well, some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. So this is the first time in, the, in Mark's gospel that the scribes enter the scene. And they're reasoning in their hearts. I don't know if Jesus really had supernatural ability or maybe he just discerned you know, their posture and the way they were looking and mumbling together. I don't know what happened. But in any event, Jesus sort of senses what they're thinking in their hearts. He knows what they're saying thinking in their hearts. Um, and they say to each other, verse 7, why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So, any commentary from you guys about their assessment there? Why does he speak this way? He is blaspheming. <coughs> Who can forgive sins but God alone? Any thoughts on that reaction? An accurate assessment. It is logical and accurate. So, I mean, we say the same thing with, you know, when somebody goes to a Catholic church and gets their sins absolved by the priest, you know, mm -hmm. we say that today. Right. Right, so it is as accurate, actually, for someone who doesn't believe he's God. So the logic would go, well, they're Pharisees, they know that God only can forgive sins. Um, he just said his sins are forgiven. He's not God. Blasphemy. That's the logic that's going through their head. Um, I think you'll see, though, that it's more than that. that their, their heart is not right, and it's not going to be right, and they are, they are against God. But I think technically they are correct. It would be blasphemy if Jesus wasn't God. You know, Isaiah, and I just thought it came up on, I have some verses that confirm their thoughts. You know, Isaiah 43:25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. So they knew that, Scripture. But you could read the same verse and think of the truth of Jesus saying that. I am the one that wipes out your transgressions, right? 
As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed, he removed our transgressions from us. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts, praying to the Father. So, technically, they're correct. So, in verse 8, immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? And then he has sort of a quiz for them. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? So, you guys have an answer to that question? I think, I think there's a couple ways, actually, you could interpret that. You could answer that and still be uh, true to what Jesus is teaching. So, what do you guys think is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk? Well, I could say either one and, and still be a fool for saying either one. Yeah. Easier to say your sins are forgiven because I, I don't have to validate that. Yes, uh, Andy, you got the you got the <laughs> trick question. Yeah, that that's actually like the commentators say. Ultimately, that that's probably what he's saying here, which I actually never took it that way. I I always thought, well, it's easy. To, neither one. It's easy to say either one. There's no difference. They're both easy to say, but you could be a fool. But yeah, so Randy's point is right. So you can't validate the. <laughs> if the sins were really forgiven, because that's hidden. That's God's prerogative. But you can validate the um, truth or the power of those words to say, get up and walk. Um, so, go ahead. I'm just thinking one of the questions always, why, like, last week y'all talked about Matthew, I mean, with verse 35, where he went out early and had what we would call quiet time mm-hmm. with God. And obviously there was some clarity brought to his purpose because when they when they want him to heal more, he says, no, we need to move on and preach. And the question ends is why, and this was part of what this answers, why does he do the miracles then? Mm-hmm. And that's the, it's a validation that people can see whether it's sickness, paralyzation, Lazarus to life. Yep. It establishes his authority. Yep. That's what Matt and I talked about last week at the end. He, you know, why... Did he, did he do the miracles to uh, help people? And that's true, too. Because he says earlier, actually, in, that he, um, he had compassion on him. So he does have true compassion on people and does want to relieve our suffering on earth. So that's one reason to perform the miracles. But he must have left some unhealed in Capernaum. Right. He left some unhealed in Capernaum, certainly. Uh, so the bigger point is it's, um, it's a tool. It, another reason, it's a tool to bring people to him so that he can preach and teach. Uh, that would be another reason. And then the third reason, which I think we see here, is to teach. To, to teach them the, uh, the grander mission that he has, which is forgiving sins. And which is what he'll show us here. So those are the three uh, reasons I, I see here in these texts. It validates his teaching. It establishes his, his authority. It shows his compassion. And, I, and it is a tool. And you see throughout the whole gospel, all of them, I mean, all he uses at all time, the physical healing to draw people in so that it's a platform for him to teach. You know, one thing I think is neat, too, is that you know, the demons recognize he's God, the Pharisees recognize he's claiming to be God, and some of the people are, you know, and, and it's, it's funny because, you know, most of the time when you teach Jesus in our culture <coughs> in this day and age, um, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know, it's, it, I can't remember that, who's it, Josh Mandala said he was a liar or lunatic or lord or whatever. You know, yeah. It's like we, we, we think he was a good teacher, we think he was some moral, ethical, you know, person or whatever. But it's like, but I mean, everyone recognized, and even like the Jehovah's Witnesses who try to change a few verses so that it doesn't explicitly say he's God. The whole thing explicitly says he's God. And yes. And the enemy saw it, and the demons saw it, and the people that believed saw it. And it's yep. just a constant testimony that he's, you know, mm-hmm. he's man, he's the son of man, but he's. Yep, great point. He's God, and uh, I think this is the beginning in Mark of, the, of his teaching of that, really emphasizing to them that he's God. He's more than just a miracle worker. We'll see. He has the ability to forgive sins, and he sort of uses this this miracle to tell them that and show them that. So, which is easier to say? And uh, verse 10, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth. So he tells us here why he's doing this one. 
but so that you may know, basically, I'm God, and I, I have authority to forgive sins, I prove that the second part of this is true, get up and walk. And so it's a, it's a visual demonstration to them, and he explains it here in this verse. I have authority, I am the Son of Man, I can forgive sins. Any other thoughts on that before I talk just for a minute about the Son of Man phrase? So it was prophesied that that's what the Messiah would do, and John must have known that, yeah. So you guys probably know this, but Son of Man is Jesus' um, most commonly used phrase in the New Testament to refer to himself. And a little hard for me to get my mind around exactly what that means, but for sure it, it's reference to Daniel chapter 7. In verse 13 and 14, I'll read those for you because this, this is the reference Jesus is using. Uh, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one, like a son of man, was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was present before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So th this is the reference Jesus is talking about. When he says the Son of Man, the people who were familiar with Daniel would know that he's saying, I am the one that was called to come. I am the Messiah. I am the one that was prophesied to come. Probably not everyone understood what the Son of Man meant. And so the commentators I read said maybe this was... Um, like a, a slower introduction to his messiahship in the context of trying to, you know, contain the crowds and stuff, rather than just announce it all right at once, I'm the messiah, like it's been prophecy. This may have been a way to ease some people into that truth. I don't know if that makes a lot of sense, but I do know this. Jesus referred to himself mostly in the New Testament by calling himself the Son of Man, <clears throat> and the reference to it is the prophecy in Daniel that, is referring to him. Any other comments on that phrase? I've always found it difficult to put those three words together and understand what that, how they fit, but essentially it's from Daniel. I also, I also thought this, I mean, I, I think he definitely is referenced to Daniel, right? Because Jesus does that a lot where you know, he calls himself the shepherd, which I think is right back there to Ezekiel, mm -hmm. I'm the incarnate Son of Man, right. Yep, very good. I think so too. Okay, so we'll just finish out this, this uh, scene here, verse 11 and 12. I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Luke says they were all amazed and filled with fear. Oh, by the way, if you guys don't have one of these harmonies of the Gospels, do you guys use this at all? You know what a harmony of the Gospel is or the parallel Gospel? So you got to get one. I mean, it, it's a great tool to help you. Um, basically what this book does is it tries to line up the parallel passages from each of the Gospels. In this book, even John is, is folded in there. But you can really, uh, it, it's very helpful. So... I use it in this study and will probably, by the way, be delving into the other gospel accounts of these um, scenes more as we go forward. But uh, just as a side note, this section of Mark chapter 2, 
verse 1 through 22, those 22 verses pretty much track each other in um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Very similar um, accounts, those 22 verses. But Luke says they were all amazed, filled with fear. Matthew says they were filled with awe when they, when they saw this. It clearly taught a very valuable lesson. Jesus not only heals physically, but he forgives sins. Any other, any other thoughts on that scene before we move on to Matthew being called? How about um, from a medical perspective? You know, I mean, you don't see people having paralyzed and, I mean, the muscle, what's the word? Atrophy. Mm-hmm. Muscles you know, atrophy. I mean, you know, even when you have surgery nowadays, they put all this stuff on you to keep the muscles mm-hmm. active. So, I mean, you know, these healings of Jesus when people are lame and so forth, <clears throat> you know, they just get up and walk. I mean, were they wobbling around like a nine-month-old that's learning how to walk? Uh, I, clearly not. <laughs> clearly, the Bible says, I mean, people yeah. leap up, they see immediately this guy, I bet you walked out like he... I, I don't think so. I mean, clearly a miracle. It doesn't make any sense medically. Apparently he even picked up whatever he was on. Yeah, right. Picked up his pallet. <laughs> right. <laughs> Cleaned up the mess. I don't know if he fixed the roof or not, but they, <laughs> really, I, I think it, it's clearly just a supernatural miracle that... Yeah. The, so, I mean, if you compare that with the healings, you know... Exactly, yeah. Today, they, uh, yeah. So. I think it's a real poignant scene to really just... <clears throat> the faith of them and the effort and the joy, no doubt, that came to him and then those four guys that had to carry him around probably all his life. They were overjoyed too, probably. And uh, the whole town knew it. I don't know how long he'd been paralyzed, but it was clearly a significant demonstration of Christ's power. Contrasts the temporal and the eternal in a way that is because it's got to leave a question in the scribe's mind and in everybody's mind because although he healed them, which was clearly the reason they were there, there's this reach into eternity and sins being forgiven and stuff that apparently I'm just thinking how significant it would be to see a true healing like that, mm-hmm. a true miracle, and that would be enough. I mean, that would be powerful. Yes. But there's something else going on here that forces you to think deeper about it. Yep. And uh, I'm wondering how many people did, or if the scribes did, and we don't know. Don't know, but I, when you read the Gospels, you see that they saw miracle after miracle. Even the um, disciples, you know, as, the, as Mark especially goes on, they're still questioning, can, you know, can you save us from the storm? You know, can you feed these people a second time or third time? It's like they don't seem to grasp really what's going on, so... It's amazing. Yeah, we kind of do that today as well, though. I, yeah. You know, the other day I was praying about something, and you know, I, even, I had the thought during my prayer of, you know, Lord, I know you've done this, the same thing I was praying for. I know you've done this in the past, but will you do it again type of thing, you know? And, yeah. and um, you know, it's like we doubt that, yeah, I know you've done that before, but, you know, we kind of start to, maybe it's just me, but, you know, I start to cast out if it'll really... Transpire again. It's, it's not just you. You receive not because you, you don't ask properly. We don't ask enough, right? So we shouldn't doubt. He hears all of our prayers and answers all of them. Yep. Okay, anything else? As you are, of course, I know this is a particular instance here, but you know, we have a grandson that's got some lifelong challenges. He's four and a half years old. There's nothing more we'd like to see him healed of this, but he's going to have lifelong challenges and stuff like that. Yes. You know, there's nothing more than we'd like to see him healed. Yep. And, uh, but, you know, that little boy at the playground asked me Friday, why is his neck crooked? I said, that's why God made him. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Yes, I... I there's nothing more than we desire. Yeah, but God is good and merciful, and He works all out for His glory. And He, you know, there's instances in the Bible where it's very clear He gives people infirmities and difficulties to strengthen their spirit. And life on Earth is smaller than a sliver, and eternity uh, is much more important. So.
We'll pray for you guys. I know that's really tough, but um, God works miracles, and the miracle that he works in our soul and our spirit is much bigger than the physical healing. No more Yes, no more medical problems in heaven. Okay, let's talk about Levi, the tax collector. Um, I will read again. Well, I'll just read these sort of verse by verse and go through it. So he went out again, verse 13, by the seashore, and all the people, all the people were coming to him, and he was te- teaching them. So the new scene, and what you see Jesus doing, again, teaching. All the people flocking to him, emphasizing his most important thing was teaching them. He's by the seashore. And he passed by, and he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Now, this is interesting, because there's also James, the son of Alphaeus, who is one of the disciples. And... But they're never mentioned as brothers, Levi and James the Lesser, son of Alphaeus. So Alphaeus is mentioned five times in the New Testament. Four times he's called uh, James the son of Alphaeus. So he's James's father. And once here, this name is used for Levi's father. All that to say, I don't think they were brothers. If they were, it seems like they would have said so, you know. Peter and Andrew were brothers, and John and James were brothers. And they seemed like they would have said Matthew and James the Lesser were brothers, so... Just a side note, I don't think so. Nevertheless, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. So we'll see later, this Levi is Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, who was a tax collector. And uh, this is an effective call of the Lord on his life. He said, follow me, and he got up and followed him. So again, we need to put ourselves in the shoes of Matthew. So... The tax collector, I'm sure no one liked him. I wouldn't like him, right? None of us would really like much the tax collector. He's sitting there in his booth by the sea, collecting the taxes from all the imports, from all these um, produce and products that are traveling through that area. He was a servant of Rome, right? Rome occupied that area, and he worked for the Roman government, and he would collect the taxes. So not only was he not liked because... He collected taxes, um, but the Jews particularly thought he would be sort of like a traitor working for Rome. So they didn't like that too much either. So he was a despised person. And the tax collectors, you'll see here in this verse, I mean, he says three times, tax collectors and sinners, tax collectors and sinners, tax collectors and sinners. So they're in this lump together. Uh, he He's not a very well-liked man. Um, they also, tax collectors, associated a lot with the Gentiles and unclean people. So that's another knock against him from the point of view of the Jewish people, especially the Pharisees. So they cooperated with Rome. They were considered sort of dirty by associating with the Gentiles so much. They collected the taxes, and they were often corrupt. They often overcharged and lined their own pockets. So um, not a very high opinion of Matthew among the Jewish people. But they were rich, right? They did have a lot of money. And we'll see actually here, Matthew for sure had means because he hosts a big party in his house after he is saved. And um, so he, he did have a lot of money. But this is 
the scene we see in Mark of Matthew's uh, effectual call. And he got up and followed him. And in verse 15, And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them, and they were following him. So that's a great scene too, right? So Matthew, the dirty tax collector, apparently told all his other dirty tax collector sinner friends to come in to his party and hear Jesus and recline at the table. And it says here, I think this is... Um, <coughs> Well, it may not be here, but it's in one of the other accounts. It talks about how the, you know, they're reclining at the table. So this is an intimate meal. You know, When they had an intimate meal in that time, they would sort of they had a certain posture and a positioning where the table was lower, and they would just sort of lay down these couches, and they sort of dominoes lined up next to each other. So it's an intimate setting, and now you have Jesus. The Pharisees are seeing this, Jesus in there with these 30 people. The sinners and tax collectors. It's a really poignant scene again, I think. Again, Mark is intentionally describing it like this for us because it was true and it paints a picture for us. Um, and they said, and so then another scene where the scribes question this and they ask to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, verse 17, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So that phrase about the uh, healthy needing a physician, <coughs> it obviously was a proverb, because we just read in another account, I think it was Matthew, where he says the pro well-known proverb, and he quotes this. So this must have been a saying at that time, and it makes a point that's pretty clear to us, that, um, and the hearers would have understood what he's saying, obviously, People who aren't sick don't need a healer. Only the people that are sick need a healer. And this is another indictment on the Pharisees. It's almost like he's saying, you're like the experts of the law and stuff. Why aren't you teaching people and helping people? This is a little indictment on them. So he's pointing out, I'm here to help the dirty people, the sinners, the people that need help, which is, as Shane told today, everybody, right? So he's not here to help the people who are righteous, which in a way it's nobody, but he's really saying here the people who think they're righteous, like the, he's here to help the humble people that are sinful and want to hear my message. And that hearers would have understood the truth of what he was saying there. Any other thoughts about Matthew? The, uh, I was going to read for you the account before I move on. Give me a second. I just want to look at the account in... Matthew, of his own calling. I'm sorry, it's Luke. Luke chapter 5, verse 27, 28. After that, he went out and noticed a tax gatherer named Levi sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and rose and began to follow him. And um, so, left everything, left all his riches. And then the, I'll, we'll close with this uh, contrast, really, I thought of, because I see him as a rich person. He's rich. And when he leaves his office as the Roman servant, <coughs> there's no going back to that, right? They're, they're not going to let him back in to get his job back. So this is a true conversion, a true sacrifice, everything he has, left everything and followed Jesus, ultimately writing the gospel for us. And it made me contrast him with what we'll read about probably in a couple months in Matthew, or I'm sorry, Mark chapter 10. Let's just go ahead and read that, verse 17. You guys might know where I'm going with this. Another ruler, rich young ruler. Um, as he was setting out on a journey, verse uh, 17 of Mark 10. A man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. And he lists the, the law, the Testament, the Old Testament law. He lists them. You know these. In verse 20, he said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love. This is interesting. Felt a love for him, or, or Jesus loved him, and said to him, One thing you lack 
Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And then Jesus tells him how hard it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. But, he says, with God everything's possible. So I, I see sort of Matthew in this. I say, yes, it's hard for Matthew to enter heaven because he is rich. But with God it's possible because he called him and said, follow me, and Matthew followed him. And the difference between these two men, I want the verse that was read this morning in church, Hebrews 12, 2, 3, uh, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So Jesus was the author of Matthew's faith, and it seems like the rich young ruler here didn't have faith, but at least not right there. I just wonder, though, if it says Jesus loved him. So I wonder if, if he did leave there and go, you know, scratch his head and repent and think, you know, I, I do give up everything, and maybe eventually he followed the Lord. Don't know. I hope so. Okay, I think we'll stop there. Any, any questions? I think uh, two more scenes that Mark uh, describes for us that say so much. And um, Go ahead. I was just going to say, I think there's a, there's a really good discussion about how did the scribes and Pharisees arrive at a conclusion that you, can't, you shouldn't eat with folks of bad character who had a reputation. And, and because I think we wrestle with that some. Yes. Because we know... It says, he who walks with the wise will become wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Yes. And so we might justify not going to dinner with these guys on that basis. Or 1 Corinthians 15 says, uh, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. Yes. So we might take those and, and decide not to. And we, and we want our kids and, mm -hmm. and ourselves to be careful who we make friends with. So right. how is this any different? I think that's a good discussion. That's it is a curveball question, right. So he's bringing up the tension of, on the one hand, um, witnessing to the lost and associating with them like Jesus did. And in fact, the image of the physician is the same thing. So you have the sick person and the doctor going in there. The doctor doesn't want to become sick, but yet has to enter the fray. And I think he used that um, analogy intentionally so I don't have a good answer for you but it, it is a tension that's out there to have the wisdom to know um, how much we associate with unbelievers and how when we do associate with them we don't give the impression that we uh, accept I mean I don't imagine if they were drinking and, you know his behavior clearly would have been above the fray so that might be one way to do it actually to I'll answer the question where yeah how do I fraternize with them? Yeah. Because I have some things in common, but some things not in common. Yep. And those are hard decisions sometimes. Yep. <coughs> and where, where am I influencing and how am I being influenced then, and where am I being influenced? And so mm -hmm. all of that plays into it. Yep. I think an answer might be actually just looking at the example of Jesus with um, even these first two chapters, uh, the healings. It's like he could have continued healing. And the principle we learned last week was I guess as long as you, we have in our mind always in our heart is to end this with teaching or preaching or witnessing the word, that's our ultimate goal, then that would put us on firm ground. If we know that all this fraternizing we're doing, in the back of our mind we're thinking, how can I present the light, present the truth in the word to these people? Might be a good barometer. Yeah, I think I, in my heart, like, again, I mean, it's, it's a constant discernment. I mean, you have, and, and you're not always perfect in your discernment, you know, but I think one of the things that I've noticed is just that focus on purpose. If you keep your mind focused on your purpose here on this earth, which is to bring people into the fold and edify and equip others, you know, to, yeah. um, to do that work, then that gives you that sort of, I mean, just if you just keep your eyes on purpose, purpose, mm -hmm. purpose, purpose, and I think that's even what Christ is doing with miracles, you know, I mean, he could have healed everybody, but that wasn't the purpose at the moment. Purpose was to show who he is, and when he returns, that is a purpose. He will heal everyone. knows the purpose perfectly. Mm -hmm. He knew his purpose and his father's will perfectly. And we're, we're striving to discern that. And the, the, you, you become better at discerning his will by doing his will, reading his will, and applying mm -hmm. his will. You know, so as you grow, you, you gain discernment and wisdom. But, but when it comes to those everyday interactions, mm -hmm. I mean, the, 
best way to know is to, to focus on that purpose. And, but but it, it's, it's always yep. a... I think it is hard to discern. Another thought I just had as you're talking is maybe you could think of people you've associated with for a long time, whether you call it fraternizing or co-workers or um, friends. And if you can think, well, I've never, I've known them for years and we've done stuff together and I've never wit witnessed to them, that would be a barometer to say and check here. Uh, uh, this isn't right. I should be telling them the truth. Mm -hmm. And so turn it that way. Good point, yes. And so I think in my own life that there is a time you have to befriend and 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 love and and recline with those folks to open your own life up to them. And mm -hmm. so as we all discern that, but then when you sense that there's a, a closed door and a, a scoffer that becomes I don't want to know or hear, not that that will always be the case, maybe right. one day later the Lord will open their heart. But for that time, it's a good time to then move on, you know. And so then you're not becoming entrenched. But for a time, I don't know how else you mm -hmm. can open your life up other than to somehow be real amongst people that won't be always approachable otherwise. Yep. It's Dr. Ryan, um, yep. Jesus' half-brother, Jesus, could he also have an answer for us here where he says, um, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by blood. Which yeah. is telling us that it's risky, but it has yeah. to be done for, for them to be saved. It's a great point. It's risky, but it has to be done. All right, so, yeah. Lots to learn there. We should be motivated to help them. Be careful. You don't become part of them. Always remember that the barometer might be if you're not witnessing eventually soon then your heart may be right maybe you just want to golf a lot right maybe you just want to <laughs> do stuff that's just not as productive so anyway i think that's good thank you we'll meet next week